Welcome and happy Friday. This is Travelog, the podcast of Condé Nast Traveler, and I am here in the Condé Nast Podcast Studios with Sebastian Modak, who is an editor for Traveler. And we have two special guests today. We have Lee Abamonte, who is a traveler, and we'll talk about that a little bit more in a second, and Fred Finn, who's also a traveler. And Fred is on the Skype, so you may hear a little vocal uh, twitchiness due to technology and the lack thereof or the improvements there too that need to be made there too. Um, my name is Brad Rickman. I'm the digital director. And our topic of the week is competitive traveling. These two guys that we have here are perhaps the two most traveled men in the world. And I, I have no idea how, I think we're going to talk about how we know this and how we rank this and how we uh, score these kinds of things. But you guys are at the pinnacle of what we think of as competitive traveling. And we talked a couple of weeks ago on the podcast about the sort of science behind travel and how it actually does change your moods, it does affect your health, and how it is actually a thing that is very physical in its manifestations. So I'm curious, as a sort of place to start, explain your title. So, Lee, what is the measure by which you are the world's most traveled man? Well, I'm not the world's most traveled man. I'm amongst the amongst world's the most world. traveled people. I'm sure a lot of the uh, big travelers listen to this. Blood is boiling, yeah. as they heard you say that, because some of these people go Tweet. crazy about that kind of stuff. But... Uh, you know, for me, I've been to every country in the world. Until recently, I was the youngest American and the second youngest person ever to do it, I believe it was. But uh, it's hard to totally know everything because not everybody puts it on the internet. Right. But um, yeah, so I've been to every country in the world. And my first ever trip was actually to London for a study abroad back uh, September 7, 1998. First time I ever left the country. Wow, that's very rapid. Like, so you started in 19. How old were you? 20. You were 20. Yep. So it wasn't like you've been doing this since you were a kid and really racking it up. This is something you came to as an adult, basically. Correct. Never even went to Canada or Mexico as a kid. I grew up in Trumbull, Connecticut, about an hour from here. And the furthest I was ever from Trumbull, Connecticut was Washington, D.C. So we were talking before about the science behind travel and whether it's a genetic thing. There's a theory. I don't know if you've heard this. There's a theory that there's actually a, a chromosome that causes people to be more uh, likely Ad to adventurous travel. Adventurous. Risky right, risk takers. What turned it from, I'm taking a trip to London, to a thing that you were obsessed with? I wouldn't say I'm obsessed with it, but at the same time, it's become a huge passion of mine. And uh, basically what happened was when I stepped off the plane at Heathrow, you know, we were trying to get one of those uh, taxis into town to find the, uh, the flat. And uh, it was like one of those old school London taxis you saw on TV. The black, the black, yeah, the black taxi. And they drive on the other side of the street. The guy had the accent. It was just, it just kind of blew my mind, you know, and me and my friend are just sitting there imitating his accent and like practicing our British and, uh, you know, then we got there and um, it's just everything, uh, the way they talked, the way they acted, you know, the, the, the pubs, the pints. And then uh, I remember taking a weekend trip to France and uh, I took the channel right after it opened. And, uh, you know, I got off in Gare du Nord and we we're trying to figure out where the hell to go. And like, holy shit, these people speak French. <laughs> oh, my God. It, like blew my mind. And, uh, you know, honestly, and then I did a couple more of those trips, Germany, Spain, Holland, a, co a couple others. And I was just hooked. And in Europe is just a great place to kind of get your big toe wet and travel because it's close, it's easy, it's safe. And uh, there's just a million different languages, cultures, foods, you know, currencies, like the whole thing. So it really was the novelty, the difference that hooked you. And you're like, wow, I mean, if the UK is this different, imagine 
I don't know. Yeah, exactly. Botswana or something. Plus, I was 20, so I could drink, yeah. and I couldn't drink easily at home. So. <laughs> That's That's, that only works for Americans. <laughs> Fred, what about you? What got you into this passion? Well, a passion it is, and I think it actually gets into your blood. It's a drug after, after a while, I think. You know, when I was very small, there was lots of funny airplanes flying over my house. I, I'm from a place called Canterbury in Kent. And they had swastikas on the tail. Uh, and that was my uh, first view of, of anything and Spitfires chasing them, yeah? Mm -hmm. So as the war ended, a famous airplane called a Mosquito was built up in my town. And my grandmother lifted me up into this Mosquito. And to this day, I can remember the smell. You know, the propeller, piston engine planes and leather seats they soak up the atmosphere, and it's a unique smell that piston and passenger planes used to have. And then when I got a bit older, there was a World War II airport living about 12 miles away, and I'd go there on a bike, and I'd pester everybody to give me a flight, you know. <laughs> so in the end, somebody took me up in an airplane called a Tiger Moth, which is a biplane with an open cockpit, and they did. And they took me up to about 700 feet, I think, and turned me upside down. And I was held on by bits of material. Not only did it excite me, but I thought I wanted more. I made my first commercial flight in 1958 from London to New York with four stops. What were the four stops, out of curiosity? Yeah. London, Preswick, Keflavik, Bangor, Maine, and Idlewild. Wow. And people say, Idlewild, nice. where's that? There, there was an Idlewild uh, yeah. <laughs> mention here. I love it. And Bangor, Maine. So you could fly, you fly into Bangor, Maine. JFK today, yeah? And that flight took 18 hours. And on the reverse of that, my fastest flight was two hours and 59 minutes from New York to London on Concord. Wow. And, and it's in my blood ever since. And the Concord is tied to your history with travel, right? And the title that you eventually received for a while of... The world's most traveled yeah, well, Concord uh, isn't flying anymore, and I made more flights on it than anybody. Uh, I made 718 crossings in Concord. That's um, insane. That's not astonishing. It sounds like a lot. And <laughs> come up to Rio and catch the Concord to Dakar and Paris, and then go on my trip. I, I used to work for a company in America called Hasbro, and I licensed their manufacturing countries so that they didn't have to, mostly third world countries, that didn't have to spend uh, their foreign exchange. So, you know, working in third world countries, it's uh, with government, with foreign exchange, with private corporations, you, you know, they, you give them enough to do for two or three weeks, but after two weeks, maybe or a week, you'd have to go back again. So I was become like, a, I was traveling 11 months a year. Wow. And uh, it certainly caused me havoc with my marriages. <laughs> but I had a, I, that, that's a common theme a, amongst uh, big travelers is divorce <laughs> I, would think. I had a 27 love affair with Concord which was longer than I had with any of my wives but yeah it, it is a, it's a thing that gets into you it's become my way of life I talk about travel I encourage other people I talk to flight attendants what people who fly like me would require uh, what one thinks about when and they live in a hotel to hotel staff mm -hmm. and so on and so forth. And I then endorse a lot of products regarding travel. And travel goes and goes and goes. It doesn't stop. 
There was a guy uh, named uh, John Klaus who was the original uh, Most Traveled Man. Like Guinness actually certified it before they got rid of the record. And when uh, this other guy, uh, Charles Vili, came around, who's a friend of mine, and, and tried to take the record, uh, John Klaus was pretty pissed about it. And he goes, fuck this, man. It cost me six wives. I'm not giving up this title. <laughs> <laughs> And for you guys, how does it feel? Does it feel like a sport? It sounds like, number one, you both described very sort of visceral sensory responses to going to these new places. Like in your case, Fred, you talked about the plane and the smell of the plane, the way that that captured something and stuck with you. You talked about the sights, the sounds, hearing people's voices and the, the cars and stuff like that. Does it feel like a compulsion or does it feel like something like eating, like it just, it tastes good, you know? I mean, for me, it was about learning the experience, everything new. I always like new, whatever it was. Um, even today, I still like new. If a new restaurant opens up, I'll be like the first one in line. You know, I just want something new and different. So for me, that was really it. And then the competitive thing didn't really come out. I mean, you know, I played every sport growing up and I still play sports and uh, I've always been competitive, but I'm more competitive with myself than anyone else. So for me, it was just like once you've been to so many places, I, you know, for me, it was never a thought to go everywhere. It was only when I kind of ran out of, I'll say, the good places to go to uh -oh. that, uh, you know, I decided to uh, go to all the places like your your grandma would be mad at you if you went to, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Fred, how about you? What is it that keeps you coming back? Well, I think, well, I'll put it another word, if all politicians traveled to other countries like we have, or American voters, by the way. <laughs> well, I, I, me too. I'm also a U.S. citizen, but I didn't vote in the last election, I have to say. But uh, the knowledge you get from travel is an education all on its own. I mean, I end up in places like Lagos and the client's not there. So I go and find him in the bush, maybe 100 miles away, because I didn't travel all the way there not to be seen. And this is what you learn. And... Uh, you learn about the habits of people, how to get along with people, because if you don't get along, there's not much point in your traveling. It's a big communication thing that is traveling. It learns you and teaches you how to be patient, really, because it's no good thumping the desk at the girl. If, if you missed the flight, it probably wasn't her fault. And I believe it's a, it's a fantastic education, travel. I really do. But is there a point when, um, maybe you can answer this, Lee, when, like, when it shifts though, like from, let's say the educational aspect or the kind of opening yourself to new experiences to like becoming a checklist, like, did you feel that shift when you were doing it? And you're like, oh shit, I got to knock out Somalia. And, and did that take away from the other more rewarding experiences of travel, I guess? I mean, the, the, the short answer is yes, but, and, uh, when I, when I say yes, but it, the education uh, process never ends. So it's like, yeah, I didn't grow up saying, man, I really want to go to Somalia. I hear it's amazing in May, you know, yeah. <laughs> but uh, at the same time, like I can talk about what it's like in Somalia and a lot of other people can't, you mm -hmm. know, so it's like from firsthand experience. So, yeah, I, I didn't really want to go there and uh, I didn't want to go to a ton of places that I went to. But at the same time, I don't regret going to any of them. And, uh, you know, in hindsight, I'm glad I did everything I did. Um, now I don't go to some places because I just don't really want to go and I don't feel the pressure to go. And the only pressure I had was for myself, right. you know what I mean? Because I wanted to do it. There's no, like, overlording, like, agency or, you know, organization that oversees this stuff, even though some people think that they're, like, the god of travel. But, uh, you know, it's just for fun. And that's the thing. If, if travel ceases being fun, then it's time to reevaluate. And... 
it never lost fun for me, but there was a couple of places like you'll just be sitting like some random island in the South Pacific, like, uh, you know, a place called Nauru like, or something. Yeah, yeah. Actually, I had a good time in Nauru, <laughs> but uh, Tuvalu, which I always said is the single most boring place I've ever been to in my life. Or <laughs> oh, an- no. An- another island called Wallace, Wallace and Futuna. And I just spent two days there just like, oh, my God, what do I do? You know what I mean? <laughs> and like, so you're just sitting there and it's it's like so boring. And, uh, you know, but at the same time, in, in hindsight, I'm glad I went. But at the time, you're just like, Jesus Christ, can they have more frequent flights out of here? <laughs> It never gets boring. No, but it's not boring, but, you know, it still is. It can be. <laughs> you could think yourself you could be in a job working 40 hours a week turning a screw. That's true. And I sometimes think about that, and I don't care where I am. It's better than that, yeah? <laughs> All right, that's a and good I was, point. I, I always say travel beats selling insurance, you know? Perspective. <laughs> I was in Somalia by accident. The plane uh, made emergency landing in Mogadishu. And you all have to get off the plane because they can't fuel the plane while you're on it because mm-hmm. there's no fire equipment there. That's what I remember about Somalia. Yeah. <laughs> but that was it? Uh, you didn't go back? Memories. Yeah. <laughs> but it, it's, it's uh, the places I went to that perhaps like Lagos and places like that, would I want to go back again? Not really. But whilst I was there, I made the best of it and I had a good time because I used to think, well, this is that, you know, because a lot of people would love to be doing what just what I'm doing, sitting in a boring job in the middle of winter in, in New York, for example. And Lagos, it's balmy and hot, and it wasn't so bad. It's funny he you mentions know? Lagos. That is my single least favorite city that I've ever been to in my entire life. Three times in two days, the cops tried to shake me and my friend down for just like walking down the street and threatened to imprison us if we didn't pay money. And then three times in two days, we went to an ATM to get money to pay off said cops. And uh, it always gave us the wrong amount of money. And it wasn't like I asked for a hundred bucks and got 99. It was like I asked for a hundred and got like seven. (laughs) And then uh, I remember like walking into like one of the banks and it was like one of those banks that advertises on like CNN or whatever, international, you know, you see in your hotel room when you're abroad. And I was like, like, oh, okay, they'll take care of it. You know, there's cameras right next to the ATM. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> How do the cops react to that? Oh, God. <laughs> it's uh, The corruption level down there is just tough, you know? Yeah. In Nigeria, they used to have a, you know, you'd show up and the guy would say, yeah, uh, you're not the right Mr. Finn. Uh, but I know the chief to swim Oh, you are the right Mr. Finn. And then on Friday night, they used to lock the door. And they say, yes, we know, but you sir, you see, sir, you have to maintain a balance of $1,000 and you're just below. So to open the door, you have to get money. Well, there were no ATMs and holes in the wall then. So you had to pay the guy a little backhander, dash, to open your hotel door for you. They, they used to make a fortune. <laughs> but uh, I used to stay on the same floor as the guy that owned it. So you got water, electricity and air conditioning. And it was so high up, the mosquitoes didn't get up there. So you just have to know, and it's commonly from experience, where you go back to, what to do when you get there. Mm-hmm. And I, and I, but I don't know the one. I don't, I don't get jet lag. I don't believe in jet lag. What do you mean I you don't believe in it? Like it doesn't exist, or or just that you've gotten no, to it a doesn't point? Exist. <laughs> so what is happening that people feel like they have jet lag? Well, now we get into it because I tell you what. <laughs> Let's get into it. <laughs> Let's do it. I think. New title for this podcast, Jet Lag Doesn't Exist. The world, according well, to Fred. <laughs> sometimes I'm, I'm at a function or something. They say, well, that, unannounced, will I say something? And I, what did I talk about? So I mentioned I don't believe in jet lag. 
and that immediately gets a conversation going. Now, why don't I believe in it? Well, take an average family that's going to travel from here, London, to Miami. So they've got to get up very early in the morning. They've got the stress of packing, the stress of getting to the airport, the stress of checking in, the stress of getting through security these days. Then to find the gate and they get on the flight. They're already knackered and they've already had a long day. Then they've got a 10-hour flight. They've got to get out the other end. They've probably had a few drinks and they've got to get to a hotel and they're jet-lagged. Well, let me tell you something. I did this nearly every week on Concord and it takes four hours, three and a half hours, and nobody gets jet-lagged because <laughs> you can get, arrive in the morning at 9.30 and go straight to work. And that, therefore, brings me that if it, if it doesn't happen in three and a half hours, it's got something else to do. And I think it's being strapped in a aluminum tube where you get hot air from the engine, you get dehydrated. And if you take care of living as it time changes you're going to, you keep fresh water on your skin, close your eyes every hour, get them refreshed. No such thing as jet lag. Fred has just had. cured the cured jet lag. <laughs> I just need jet supersonic lag. travel it's to been come back. Affecting man yeah. for the last hundred years. <laughs> supersonic travel's coming back. Supersonic travel will solve jet lag. <laughs> the new Dreamliner, yeah, from Boeing. It's the most amazing aircraft to fly in now because the air to the cabin doesn't come through the engine, so it's not baked, and it's a lot more humid and moist. Yeah, I've noticed and that. It, I just did the Virgin Atlantic uh, inaugural to Atlanta which is a fairly long flight, and you know what? It's brilliant. Mm -hmm. It is. So I think the newer aircraft taking note, if they put more humidity in the aircraft, you don't get this dehydration so much. Yeah, and they, they, they started playing with the uh, lighting as well. I took an A380 to um, France, the New York-Paris route, and I really didn't get much jet lag, if anything at all. No, yeah. the A380s and the Dreamliners are both killer new uh, airplanes. Yeah, I love 52, that. yeah. Especially if you're in upper class, it's about as good and as you always have to drop a drop of this, you know. Absolutely. <laughs> Cheers. Absolutely. There you go. Um, maybe at the peak of when you were really, really going hard. How many days a year? How, many, how much time did you actually spend on the road? I travel less now than I used to. You know, I try to be normal and, uh, you know, have a regular life. But, I mean, I'm still probably traveling half the year. But, um, you know, it's a combination of work and fun. And I travel a lot now for, like, sporting events or, like, you know, concerts or events or, you know, festivals or, like, whatever it might be. Um, so it's actually great now. And now that I do this for a living and, like, get paid to travel, which still blows my mind that uh, that I can do that. And uh, it, it's, it's more fun. And I don't do the trips that I don't want to do. And whether it's for work or for fun, I really only travel to the places I, I like to go. And each year I'll throw in a couple like random spots. Like I'll go back to like random places in Africa or Asia or something that I didn't spend that much time in the first time and just get to know them a little better. And, uh, you know, now, now that I'm a little older, I have friends with more money. So then, you know, they can come too and they want to go see stuff. And it's a lot of fun for me to kind of show them around, you know, and, and uh, have them on some crazy adventures too, because it's more fun with friends. Yeah. Fred, what about you? I've been doing this 59 years, man, and I still love it. And how many days a year? How many days out of a, an average year are month, you on the road? Because I've had a, a few medical problems, and uh, my wife is Ukrainian, and uh, I've had to stay here in the UK trying to get a residence card to stay in England with me because there's quite problems with immigration, as you've been probably reading. Yes. But I used to fly maximum... 11 months a year. 
11 months out of the year. That means 30 yeah. days a year you were home, basically. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah. And not all at the same time. Sometimes, I, I tell you what, I'd come home in the evening, spend a day, and leave. Or I'd go on the QE2 and talk about travel on the way back sometimes. But, it, you know, I met Richard Branson that way. I landed, went to Newark, and a guy picked me up and he said, you Fred Finn? I said, yeah. He said, Richard Branson would like to have lunch with you. I said, well, I'll be back in London in about three days' time. He said, no, that's tomorrow. I said, how long do you know about this? He said, since this morning. I said, well, couldn't you call me because I would have stayed in London? <laughs> he said, we got a flight from Newark for you. Oh, I thought, Christ almighty, I've just got in. I'm going to now do the, the, the red eye. And I did go back, and I had lunch with him, and I helped him to launch his airline. That's what well, that was, in essence, what he wanted to see me about. You helped him with, like, marketing, or how, how did you help? No, you know, it was a completely new idea. And at the time, companies were stopping or trying to stop first-class travel. So upper-class, which, which was when business-class kind of started, it became – my idea was to get a limousine – wherever you landed or went to the aircraft to take you to or from, or a first-class rail ticket or transportation, yeah? I, 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 think, I think when Virgin came out, it suited the traveler because it was, it was akin to first-class, and it suited the bean counters because they were playing like business class, and it was a great success. Um, and then, you know, to try to get it recognized as a good carrier and obviously it was because British Airways were knocking into its computer and stealing their, 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 their passengers but it, it's a good airline now it's, it's better now even because it's run by Delta basically I love Virgin. In fact, that was actually the first flight I ever took when I flew from Kennedy to Heathrow to study abroad. It was a Virgin 747. I sat in the very last row in the middle seat, and uh, my best friend Mike and I, we just sat there just crushing red stripes because they were just like, giving them out like candy. I was like, yeah. I mean, you got a pretty good, it has to be said, you got a pretty good introduction to travel. To travel I was yeah. like, this travel like, stuff. Best air, one of the best airlines this. ever. Thank God it wasn't on Italia or something, right? <laughs> exactly, man. These days, you would have like been on Aer Lingus or something, they wouldn't have served you booze, uh, so right. yeah, yeah. you paid eight dollars for a beer. You would, um, your life would have gone in a completely different direction. I have, a, I have a question for you guys. So this is like, you know, you're talking about all the joys of travel. You know how it has done all these things to open up your minds and everything else, and you've learned so much. And we're all uh, totally on board with that. That's what we do here. But how about like your personal relationships? You know, things like family, friends, romantic interests. Like, was you there ever a point? Was was there ever a point where you basically had to be, you know, where you were like maybe this isn't worth it. You know, here's the thing. It's like when you travel like, uh, like Fred and I do and other people like us, it's, uh, I always say that you really have to make an effort. So I think I make an effort like with friends, family, uh, you know, love interest, whatever you make an effort. Cause if you're the one who's away a lot, remember you're the one who leaves and then everyone else's life goes on without you to you it's just stopped you know what i mean but they keep going so especially now with technology like with skype and facetime and an email and texting and everything there's really no reason you shouldn't be in touch with people like you know 20 years ago when i started traveling you know i used to have to get one of those freaking phone cards that cost like 100 bucks and right. you know go to one of those, those little red phone booths yes, in uh, yes. in london and with a bunch of nickels you know <laughs> like, yes i remember and, and uh, oh, you know i used to write letters and postcards like literally when i was living in uh, in europe 
flip and and now it's totally different but in order to keep things going you really have to make an effort and then you also have to you know compromise sometimes and maybe bring uh whether it's a family member or whoever on trips with you to kind of show them what you're doing. And especially if you're doing it for work that you're not just kind of fucking off, you know, you're actually like doing something and, and whatever it is. And then they can see, and then they can kind of understand why you love it so much and why it's important to you. Hmm. You know something, Lee, when I started business travel, the fact that you didn't have mobile phones, there was no email, there was a fax. And before that, there was this ticker tape machine. <laughs> And it was actually quite good for me because whenever my chairman wanted to get hold of me, he couldn't. <laughs> uh, my PA would be calling me. Fred's like, say, I'm in the bush in Nigeria, man. <laughs> you all know he want to talk to you, honey? I said, yeah, well, tell him he can't find me. And then I, back in the hotel, I'd go to bed some nights and put the phone under the bed. And be a knock on the door because every Sunday morning about 4 o'clock, my time, if I'm in London, He'd call. And I'd answer the phone. I'd say, hello, Harold. How you know it's me? I said, then nobody else calls this time of night. And, uh, I, but he would have a guess over, and he'd like to take to his friends in Nashville or but in New York. See, I'm talking to my man in Iran or my man here, my man there. Yeah, and then I get held in the re revolution, you know. He didn't want to talk too much then. But wait a minute. Wait, 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 wait. We're not we're not just rolling by that one. We need to hear about how you got held in the during the revolution. Well, my office in Tehran was opposite the US embassy. And I was there when the hostages were there. Was that, that 79? Something like that. Yeah, and then I was there. Yeah, it was about 78, 79. I was there when the Shah left. And I was there when Ayatollah Khomeini came, and the guy from who ran British Airways, we were shut up for a couple of three days. Then they put us under house arrest. And what did we do? Well, we brewed beer. What else could you do? Right? <laughs> of course. And, and, uh, but they did eventually get us out. We, they put us on the floor of a car, you know. Who did this? Uh, who got you out? The embassy. What was left of it? British or U.S.? Uh, because they all came with us. And we, we got out by line. They were hanging people on Coca-Cola boxes on swings. Oh, these things they picked bricks up with. They were picking people up by the neck, man. It, and uh, it was a very frightening time. Were you, you seem like someone, you know, you've described a lot of uh, adventures that you've had. And you seem like somebody who doesn't scare easily. Was that frightening for you? Listen, yes, I've. I've had lots of, um, Lee will agree with this, you know, they reckon today that if you fly 100 years, 24 hours a day, that's probably your first chance that you'll have of an incident. Well, I've, I've landed with the wheels off. I've been on an attempted hijacking and I've had a bomb on board. So people like to fly with me because there's nothing going to happen to me now for the next 400 years. But go, So then going back to the, my original question then, when these things were happening, when you were in Iran, did you have a wife back home, kids? Sebastian's like, answer yeah. the damn question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I did. Luckily for me, when I was, I was asked a lot of questions, I could speak enough of the language to understand what the question was and, and not let on that I understood the language. Yeah? So I, I could answer more or less what they wanted to hear. 
But uh, a lot of people had some very unpleasant experiences. I wasn't frightened, no, because I don't think I was. Uh, but maybe how about, I was. It sounds like you've been through. I don't know. Uh, it sounds like you. I mean, you're you're the same guy who said you, the first time you went up in a biplane, you, they flipped you over and you weren't scared. You were excited. Like it doesn't sound like you're a guy who scares very easily. I've flown with the acrobatic team here, the Red Arrows, which is our acrobatic team. I flew the last flight of the Phantom Jet, and they turn you upside down as a matter of course, and a lot of things happen. Yeah, in your life, through, I, through travel, there's so much happened to me that the normal person could only dream about and you can't make it up. You couldn't write about it yeah, or you couldn't make it up. It's been such a fantastic experience, this travel. It is. It's unbelievable, man. It's, an, it's, a, it's a passion. It's a drug. But it's, I can tell you what, it beats grass. <laughs> <laughs> There's no uh, reason you can't have both. I'm not, I'm not even sure how I can follow that one up. But, uh, no, but it is, are, are you a person who, who's basically really hard to scare? Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, virtually impossible to scare, really. I mean, um, you know, I could list a bunch of ridiculous things. I mean, my favorite story to tell is how I got caught in the uh, crossfire at the Libyan border for my last country, the 193rd yes, country. We want to hear about that. This uh, is the most interesting podcast ever. I'm, I'll make a long story short. Um, I had one country to go to go to every country in the world. And then there was about six months that went by where um, it was 2011 during the Arab Spring where it was going to be a, a no-fly zone. So I was in like Algeria, I think, for 192 and I was supposed to fly to Libya. But then they closed the airports and, you know, so I couldn't fly. I uh, waited about six months. In August that year, I got a, uh, a note from somebody I know who's just like, yeah, I think you can get into Libya through the eastern border with uh, Egypt. So I literally just went to Kennedy, flew the next flight to uh, Cairo, flew out to this remote desert outpost called Mursa Mutra that no one's ever heard of. Didn't speak. Uh, I speak four words of Arabic. Hello, goodbye, please, and thank you. And, uh, you know, I had about five grand cash in my pocket that, oh I, was, my that I was going to uh, do I don't know what with, just trying to, <laughs> just trying to get there. So um, I run into to this guy who was actually, it turns out he was a UN dissident who um, left the country 41 years ago, Libya, when Gaddafi took over and he hadn't been home uh, to see his mother who was still alive. And so his brother was coming across the border with a minivan to bring him back to Tobruk, Libya, which is about a six hour drive. Okay. So I asked him if he can help translate uh, for me and get me a taxi or like whatever. And, uh, you know, and I offered him money. He refused. He said, uh, don't worry, we'll take care of you. Like me and my brother will take care of you. And I was like, okay, this is amazing. Like, sure. I mean, I was a little nervous, but I mean, at the same time to me, I, I didn't even really think about it. You know what I mean? I was just like, okay, I had a good feeling about the guy and I'm big on like instinct, you know? Yeah, yeah. So anyway, we get to the, uh, fast forward a couple hours, we get to the border and, uh, and we're sitting there all of a sudden about, uh, three cars away, I think it was, two or three cars, about 30 feet from the actual border. Um, on the other side of the border, and this is not a border like, you, you, you know, if you drive to Canada, you know? Right. And uh, on the other side of the border, there's this big truck, like you see in Africa with like 50 people on the top of the truck, right? It turns out it was Chinese smugglers trying to <sighs> smuggle fake Marlboro cigarettes into Egypt from Libya because they didn't want to pay the tariff in Egypt because there was no government in Libya. They thought they could save, you know, a few grand or whatever it was. But the uh, Libyan rebels were not having any of it, and they were demanding payment. So it turns out the Chinese on top of the truck were heavily armed. And, oh, uh, and, and so were the Libyans. And literally, these fucking guys just start shooting at each other. <laughs> and we're, like, literally, like, 30 feet away from this, like, firefight. And I'm like, 
get back, you know, like scream and go, you know, and, and, and so the guy's brother who speaks no English, he's like, oh, fuck, you know, and like, like literally floors it in reverse about a half mile into the, this like sand area, you know, and I was like, oh my God, I'm going to totally die trying to get in Olivia. But at the same time, your adrenaline's going and, you know, I kind of thought it was fun, but uh, at the same time, I mean, you know, I was definitely anxious. Um, so we waited about three hours then we go back up. And eventually, uh, the guy's like, give me your passport. And uh, he looks at me and he goes, okay, here's the deal. And I was like, all right, man, whatever you say, just tell me. You know, he goes, um, you know, and I have relatively straight teeth. And so the guy goes to me, you're going to go in under the guise of being a humanitarian dentist going into Libya to do <laughs> dental work. So, so I'm just like, fuck yeah. Okay. Whatever, man. Absolutely. Sure. <laughs> and, uh, so we get to the, uh, we get to the border and, uh, you know, he starts speaking in Arabic to the Libyan guy, like at the thing, he hands him my passport. He looks at me and he just like points to his teeth and smiles. And I just do the same exact thing. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> so then, uh, another couple hours later I was in Tobruk, Libya and I always say my, uh, last country went out with a bang you know yes indeed it did <laughs> so that was pretty cool and um you know and going back was actually pretty uneventful but i mean uh, that was just like one of the coolest stories and then i could get more into I love the how you say that like it's like a letdown like it's so <laughs> uneventful that is what we call experiential travel that is experiential travel and you only get that if you put yourself in these like absolutely preposterous situations which i've done uh, many times and it's crazy like the best the best stories I have are like kind of like those human stories and, uh, you know, I could get more into it, but, um, you know, it's, it's cool. And, uh, you know, he mentioned doing some crazy acrobatics. Um, I work with this company out in Las Vegas called uh, Sky Combat Ace, and it's like basically F-16 planes on a smaller scale that do all the same stuff. You can get up to about nine or 10 Gs and you like actually gray out and you're doing these crazy aerobatic maneuvers with these former like Navy pilots. And uh, I, if anyone goes out to Las Vegas, I'm telling you, it's the best thing you'll ever do. It's so exciting. <laughs> gray, I mean, uh, gray outs. One, yes. one out of three people puke, a couple people shit themselves, but I mean, uh, it's absolutely amazing. Trust me. <laughs> Fred, how about the gray outs? Well, he's reminded me when we landed in Libya, not Libya, Beirut, as the war was about to break out. And uh, they told the captain to pull over, you know, and he said, no, I'm not turning off the engines. I'm staying on the runway. You get your people and we're going. And there was guns going off in the distance. And then they announced on board that they had two pilots that just shut down the Libyan jets, uh, the, the American pilots. And here we are flying back through almost Libyan airspace. I felt really happy about that, I'll tell you. I thought if they knew they were on board, we might all get shot down. And uh, quite experienced. I, I was on a flight, you know, in Nigeria, you, you get your boarding pass. And, and in those days, somebody else may easily get the same boarding pass. And I learned that when you get on a flight in Nigeria, you do your seatbelt up, and you, that's it. But before I learned these little tricks, I was there having a wash, and somebody's in my seat. Okay, I'm going to fight about it. I'll drive. That plane landed four, 14 miles short of the runway because they dipped the tanks in either centimeters when it should have been inches, and they ran out of fuel, and, and 47 people were killed. So I'm a lucky guy, really. Wow. That is, yeah, that's lucky. Yeah, that's lucky. Um, Another, I'm sorry, I was going to catch Concord to Singapore. I was going to do a film on Concord in Singapore. And I, I was flying down to Bahrain. They used to change crews in Bahrain. But I couldn't make it. And I told the captain I was staying with, I'll catch up with him in Bahrain. He called me from Bahrain. He said, you're very lucky. My seat on Concord was 9A. 
they put a wheelchair passenger in tent A, and when they didn't used to go really through security in wheelchairs, and about halfway to bar end, she took out a knife and stabbed the guy in the head who was sitting in my seat. That's that's normal. <laughs> that's normal. Unreal. <laughs> wow. Jesus Christ. So, yeah, you get lots of experiences, and some not all, all that pleasant. But, uh, you know, when you look back, like Lee and I can, there's still experiences that maybe you, w- you wouldn't have wanted to be in, but it's experience of life that you can now talk about. Yeah. So do you guys think there's ever, there is such a thing as too much travel? No. I think there might be such thing as too much travel. I'm not, you know, I like to be home as well. You well, know what I mean? Because you've talked before about the whole competitive travel space and how there are some people who kind of take the joy out of travel by competing, right? Well, that's the thing. It's like some people take things too seriously. You know, I mean, for me, it's always been like fun. And even like when I was theoretically competing, I was only really competing with myself, you know, and for me, it was just a little bit of motivation and it was a goal. And I believe it's good to have goals in in life and travel and, you know, love, business, like whatever it might be, it's good to have goals. So I always work toward goals. That's why I've been successful in everything I've done, because you always kind of know what you want your end game to be. But travel is interesting because now it's a job, but it's also, and even then it was sort of a job because I was doing it so much. Um, but you, you have to enjoy it. If you don't enjoy it, what's the point? You know? So like I said, when you go to some of these remote islands or, you know, like remote desert outposts or whatever, like I was supposed to go on this, uh, uh, sub-Antarctic, uh, what do you call it? Icebreaker earlier this year from uh, South America to Africa, basically. And to go to all these really remote islands. And there was uh, there's this list called the traveler century club list that I'm six away from finishing. And it actually would have gotten me three of those islands, but it was like a month on a boat with no Wi-Fi by myself, like in the middle of like the most uh, tumultuous ocean in the world, you know, in, in no like wife. April. Good. So, <laughs> so, so for me, I was just like, you know what? And I actually went all the way down to Ushuaia and I was pretty sure I wasn't going to go, even though I'd already paid for it. I was just like, you know what? Fuck it. I'm not going. And, uh, you know, and I thought about it a lot, obviously, because, and I had announced I was going and, you know, I have a pretty good following and, you know, everyone's <laughs> going to be asking me a million questions. And then like, and I'm like, you know what? In the end, it's only what you love to do and what you want to do. And and so for me, like I've met a lot of uh, a lot of big travelers, you know, and, and a lot of the trips you do to kind of crazy remote places to alleviate costs, you you do a group thing because some of the most remote kind of worst places to go or some of the most expensive as well. So, you know, you, you meet people and you talk to them and you realize some of these people that's all they have. You know what I mean? And, and that's fine. It's at least they have something, but at the same time, I, I almost think that they don't enjoy it at all. Like if they're at one place or thinking about where they're going the next, next place. place yeah. And, uh, and for me, I'm just, and they know. just got their checklist out. Y- right? Yeah. And, 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 you know, and you I don't feel want- like you were able to avoid that, like yeah. sort of be where you were. Yeah, I think so. And then, you know, I don't want to sound like a, a hypocrite because I actually was going off a list of course, and I wanted to finish the list, but at the same time, uh, I always did my best to really, try to enjoy it. And, uh, so even when I was, you know, on a trip where I was doing like maybe 10 places in one trip or something, you know, you know, people are like, Oh, you only had like one or two days in a place. And I'm thinking to myself, I bet you I did more than one or two days than you would have done in a week. You know what I mean? Cause like I barely sleep anyway, but I mean, it was just always go, 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 but it was fun, you know? And if I didn't like it and then I would go home and go to bed. But I mean, is it like that where, where you have a very kind of like fast paced, uh, uh, aggressive approach to a place so that you can get a lot in, in a short time? Well, my idea was always to basically do a lot of research, right? So it's like, if I'm going to a place, um, you know, someone's just asking me about, uh, Samarkand, Uzbekistan, right? Mm-hmm. Like kind of a 
random place. I kind of want to go. I've, but uh, it's, it's, I've heard it's, it's amazing. Yeah, it's <laughs> an awesome place, right? But like all you know is you've heard it's awesome. You don't know yeah. any. You don't know anything about it, right? So I, I did a lot of research, and like I had one day there, you know, and it was on a trip through Uzbekistan. I had like one day in Tashkent, one day in uh, uh, Samarkand, and one day in Bukhara. So I was determined to make the most of my time. So mm-hmm. I mean. I didn't miss anything. And it wasn't like I was like running, like did the Chevy chase at Grand Canyon, you know, yeah, in, uh, yeah, vacation, yeah, yeah. you know, like one, two, yeah. three, go. Yeah. You know what I mean? It was like, I did everything I wanted to do. And, uh, you know, uh, if so I, preparation, preparation yeah. helps you make the most of it. Yeah. Do the research and know what you want to see and then leave time to do other things when you're done doing what essentially you feel like you have to do. Mm-hmm. And then you can really just enjoy it. And, and for me, it's always worked out nicely. And as long as you don't get delays and stuff like that, everything usually works out pretty good. So how about you, Fred? You said no when I asked if there's ever such a thing as too much travel. Why do you think that? First off, I'm not a competitive traveler. Mm-hmm. I travel because A, I, had, I wanted to, then I, I did it for a job, but I actually get a thrill from traveling. I think it's, it's a buzz you get that nothing else gives you. I absolutely tra- agree with that, though. Yeah. I mean, it is a fantastic thing that you do. And the people that I've met through travel, an amazing list of people. I mean, you asked me about country and western. I met Johnny Cash on a flight one day, and he told me, he had, Fred, i got to get me to the dentist, but I'd like to get a good steak first. So I took John Cash out to, to, to have a steak in New York City. we got a dentist right here. That, that's a hell of a Johnny Cash you just did, by the way. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> and and, and it's 63rd. 63rd and Thursday used to be a guy there that did the best spare ribs in New York, man. And he used to go like that or like that. And and then I, I went to his house and uh, I knew June Carter very well. And through him, Chad Atkins. And these are good, these are really good folk. I flew with Dolly Parton, for example, from London to New York to Nashville. And she told me dirty jokes all the way. I mean, I, I was laughing. My, my ribs were so bloody sore. But this is, this is what you meet. I, I mean, I flew on a Christmas day with Ricky Nelson on Concord from Paris. Only three of us, but he took out his guitar and played Country Road. And this, this, this is the fabulous thing about travel. It, the, the things you do can't possibly happen with anyone else or in any other walk of life. This is an amazing way of life. I haven't been to the amount of countries. I've been to 150 countries, but it's my life. And would I change it? No way. Would I do it again? Yes, I would. It's fantastic. And, and, it, and the opportunities that arise from travel and the people you meet and the communications you get. I mean, I, I have a home in Ukraine and I never realized until 1992, just after the Soviet Union fell, how beautiful a city was Kiev. Mm. Amazingly beautiful. Agree, agree. Then I went to Georgia. And Georgia, the country, not the, not the state, it's the oldest wine-producing country in the world. It's been on my list for it's a long time. one of the most time. underrated countries in the world. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. It's small. The food is out of this world. Agree. The wine is to die for. The culture and the people are so hospitable. I went there as a guest of airports of Georgia. And, and I was at a, giving a talk at a conference, and, and I get a lot of throwaway, you should come and visit with us, and I'm sure you have. But you know what? An itinerary came for my wife and I, and we went all over Georgia. I mean, it didn't take that long, about a week. But, I mean, the country is so amazing. And the wine, 
the super rabbi, yeah, yeah, yeah. And the women, it's, it, 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 <laughs> Eastern, I'm married to an Eastern European. I guess that worked out for just, you. Just, just threw that in yeah. there. Um, let, let me piggyback off Fred um, real quick. And uh, I, I totally agree. The life of travel is, there's, there's really nothing like that. And I feel excessively fortunate to be able to do what I do and to have done what I've done. And like like him, through travel on planes or wherever, and, and if you are good at what you do you get invited to cool events and you get to meet really cool people and it, it's it's great don't get me wrong but um when i say maybe too much if you take some time away at least in my perspective from my point of view like i've always had a uh, kept a home base i think that's really important and it has been for me but at the same time to kind of take time and kind of reflect on what you've done and how lucky you are um, and fortunate you are. Obviously, it's not luck. It's because you're making it happen. But at the same time, you really have to appreciate how cool the things you do are. Because like, how many times do you travel and you know somebody asks you a question, like whatever, you tell them a story, like, oh my god, I would love to do that. You know what I mean? And you're like, to you, it's just normal, you know. But it, to other people, it's like the trip of a lifetime. Yeah. And when you think of it like that, you're like, man, I'm a lucky motherfucker. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. So it's like, it's really important for me to do that and, and, and never really get jaded because sometimes you'll say stuff like somebody will be talking about a place and you're like, eh, that place is all right. You know, try that, you know, and you're like, shut up, man. You know what I mean? And you're telling yourself to shut up, you know what yeah. I mean? Because yeah. like, don't ruin it for them. The other thing is like, maybe you had a bad experience, but somebody else, you know, it's like, someone's like, oh, I love London, for instance. And someone else is like, oh, I hate London. It just depends. Right. You guys are talking about Lagos and I know plenty of people who have gone to Lagos and been like, oh, the city's, I love this city. Right. You know? it's, so, just, like, it's all perspective I, 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 in, in your experience. But I'll say this, like I, the way I see it is like, so I'll say that, you know, I think the Traveler Century Club, like that kind of the checklist travel type world gets a lot of criticism. And I think it gets it because people are like, oh, that's, you know, it's missing the point of travel. You're not sucking the marrow from the bone of experience. You know, you're just getting in, going out so you can check it off. But at the same time, it, it's it's also just like a different approach to travel because you're kind of doing what we're all trying to do, condensing it into just a shorter time maybe because like we're here talking and you're talking about Georgia and I'm immediately like, yes, that's on my list. Or like Uzbekistan, like, yep, that's on my list. So like, and I've what, maybe, I don't know, I've been to maybe 50 countries or something. So like, I'm not trying to go to every country in the world, but I do like, I'm constantly on the lookout for a new kinda, experience. Like, I know you well enough to know that you'd kind of like to go to every country. <laughs> yeah, I'd be, I, I would. I you, would. Not because it's on a list, but because for the same reason for the that we is for saying. The same it's reason. Like, exactly. Because you want to know what they're like. Because yeah. like, when I hear about someone's experience in Georgia or in Uzbekistan or in Ukraine, places I've never been, I'm like, yeah, that sounds good. I want to do that too. You know, here's the thing, like kind of to what you were just saying. And it's like, first of all, there's no right or wrong way to travel. Yeah. So it's like some people travel efficiently, you know, whether it's fast or slow, but efficiently, and if it's fast, that's fine. And, you know, for me, if I only spent a day or two in a place, you know, there was probably a reason. Like I also, when I was traveling, I had a full-time job or I was a full-time student. So, I mean, it's not like I had endless amounts of time. Like mm -hmm. some of these people who are doing it now, like some of these Instagram, like bloggers and stuff like that, like they don't actually have jobs, you know what I mean? And, and someone else is paying for the travel. I paid for everything, you know? So it's like, and, and if you only had a day or two, the other thing about that is you might not have seen everything, but you probably saw what you wanted to see and then you know if you want to go back to see more. So it's like, uh, you know, it's like getting a taste is better than not tasting at all. Totally. So that's that's how that. I've always looked at it. Is there a sense of community among people who are sort of power travelers like you guys? Do you, is there like a mailing oh, list? Like, I mean, you, you two know each other. <laughs> yeah. <so. laughs> I, I mean, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll... Like a house on fire because 
we love the same things. You, you can't you can't help but not get along with people that travel a lot. Mm-hmm. So much to share. I, I agree uh, to a point, but kind of like the you know some people take it a little too much and uh, you know get too serious. And, and and there's a lot of one-upping in travel too, which I don't like. I think that happens not even in the power travel community. Yeah, you just see in casual conversation, everything right? in life, and it's like you know, and uh, it's really rampant amongst budget travelers. Like I remember, like when I was a lot younger and I was doing the backpacking thing, and like if I stayed at a hostel and like I got like a private room because I didn't want to sleep in a room with like 27 grubby backpackers. You know, to be like, oh my God, you paid four dollars for your room. I only paid like sixty-five cents. I got the stoner kebab from the dumpster. Yeah, yeah you know? exactly. Like I slept on a bus station and like contracted rabies from some rat. And you're like, well, fucking great, man. You know, <laughs> you know. So I, I mean, I've always believed in. Uh, listen, you do what you do. You do it the way you do it. And you have your stories. Other people have their stories. Just let them enjoy it. You enjoy it, and everyone's happy. <laughs> Do you guys yeah. have, in order... You, you like the doctor. Sorry, say again? Travel, somebody's always going to tell you, Lee, about the bad experiences, aren't they? They always tell you about the rotten stewardess, the rotten flight they had, how the food is shit and all this. And you know what? I like airplane food. I got used to it, man. And it, and it, and it ain't that bad. You know, in order to manage that much travel being on the road that much and also going to places and knowing that you got a hefty agenda and you got to work your way through are there routines that you got into what were your secrets for sort of making sure you got in and out of airports efficiently making sure you got on and off planes efficiently you can't obviously you can't do it every time because every place is different but what were the things that you sort of tried to set up for yourself if you're well known about travel you'd be surprised what doors open when i used to come off the flight there was somebody who would see me through I had a courtesy of the port in New York. The customs guy, an immigration guy, used to come to me and say, I, I don't think everyone can relate to Fred's yeah, I, don't uh, I can't tell everybody. Travel. I mean, 718 <laughs> flights on the first class Concorde, it's hard for normal people to relate. But, like, I mean, for me, you know, I just never check bags. You know, honestly, I mean, I think that's the best thing you could do and always have all your forms filled out and make sure you have your visas in order because that really just um, alleviates time because there's nothing more annoying to me than, than wasted time, especially if you only have a short time in a place. It's true. I think, Fred, for you, this is a, like, way bigger question. But even with you, Lee, I'm curious. You, you spoke a little bit about postcards, and now things are very different. How have you seen travel change in the last 20 years? Um, I think, uh, and that's a, that, that's a, that's <laughs> that's actually a good question. And I, I honestly think that well, the internet changed everything. Okay, and and us in 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 mobile phones, right? So cell phones that work everywhere. So those two things, and then specifically digital cameras changed everything because I mean like in the in the late 90s early 2000s when I started traveling and let's say I was at the Eiffel Tower or something I'd have those throwaway cameras remember those mm-hmm. yeah and I would literally spend all 27 uh, taking the same thing just in case one didn't come out good <laughs> right and then you're like shit I just spent like I need to buy another $20 uh, throwaway camera and then you have to bring it to the mall you know you get the, <laughs> yeah. you get the double yeah. prints you yeah. know remember that and I do um, I do and then I, I honestly I think uh, Facebook has changed things so much and Mainly because it's like a phone book you can't lose. Because remember, like you know, That's before it, yeah. yeah, before the internet, like you'd meet somebody, let's say in a bar, or like whatever. You had a fun night, you met some friends, like whatever, and then you'd write their number down or the, you know if their email later on, and then you'd lose it. You'd be in the wash yeah. somewhere. Yeah, yeah or you forget about them, you know. But on Facebook, you like see their updates. You can chat with them. You can stay in touch. And the other thing now, and I think that's kind of changed travel a bit in a negative way, is Instagram. 
And, uh, and I say that because I think it's taken a little bit of the fun out of travel because, um, in my world, like with a lot of like the social media travel type people that I know, a lot of them go places, not even because they want to go there, for but the just, just for the freaking Instagram shot. Yeah. And like women, especially like, uh, let's say female, uh, uh like you know, influencers, Instagram, yeah, influencers or whatever. I hate that word, but yeah, <laughs> so like, so like they'll bring Taste like, makers. How about that one? Yeah. They'll bring like 10 dresses to take like a couple shots in and just so it looks like they're changing all the time. I mean, that's madness to me. You yeah. know what I mean? And, uh, and I feel like they spend so much time trying to get the perfect shot to go in like that one square inch of Instagram that you see on your phone and I'm just thinking to myself enjoy it and then take pictures but I mean you know if, if the priorities it's a, are kind of yeah and if it's a job skewed. I mean I get it and some of these people make a lot of money you know taking these photos these influential people um, but to how me, do you feel about that I mean, I make like you're a guy it. with opinions. I mean, I, ma I make money on it too, so I don't want to sound like a you know hypocrite. But at the same time, I mean, I don't take pictures of myself really. I mean, if I do, if I put a picture of myself on, it's just like for fun, basically. Or you're at like at the South Pole or something, right? But that's, is, yeah, that's, that's worth. I think that's, that's picture. Sharing. I think that's picture worthy. Um, but yeah, I mean, I have no problem with people making money um, on any social media, and I, you know, and I, I do it for sure, and I've made a lot of money doing it. But at the same time, I, I never again, I just never take it too seriously, and I think if you have more fun with it, then it comes out better anyway. Fred, same question for you, but I know this could go for a very long time. Like, what are the most important changes in travel that you've seen? I think there's two sorts of travel these days is that the American carriers, the full service used to be British European carriers at old fashioned contracts. And they possibly can't afford what the Emirates and the mm -hmm. airlines can afford, like Qatar, Emirates, Etihad, they and Singapore Airlines, they have new fleets and the service is better. It is, it is amazing, actually, just recently, how good American Airlines became. And United, with their new Polaris-class business seat, it's become very good. But the change is people are frightened of it, seem to be frightened of their jobs. Uh, nobody got the time to speak to you anymore. Uh, Aeroplanes seem to be getting more and more seats. Uh, British Airways, for example, have just taken three, two or three toilets out to put more seats on their 777. Uh, they've taken space out their European flights on airbuses. And it, it, my knees now always touch the front seat, it, 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 unless you're in a bed. And I think that's made it uncomfortable. If you're uncomfortable, you get stressed out and, it, and you, you get that extra feeling of tiredness. I think the, the class of travels go down. You know, people used to have respect for the flight crews. And I think today, a lot of that respect has gone as well. Mm. There used to be respect for each other, but it seems to me now that kids get on the plane, they run wild, and they always stop crying just about as you go on the bloody land. And you've been awake all night with the screaming. You know that one, Lee, as well as I do. Uh, very well said. We so. all do. And, and, and I agree with him. It's flying is no longer a big deal. Like, I remember, like, when I would fly, I'd be like, oh, my God, I'm going to fly today. This is so awesome. Now it's just like you just do it. And then, and, but I feel like it's reversed with the flight attendants and customer service as well. They're like, oh, my God, there's so many people. You know what I mean? So I think the service aspect from both the customer and the, uh, the actual airline, I think, have really yeah. dissipated. I think you're right. And so... It's a, it's a different world. I think that also the, the security 
Oh, Texas airport, yeah. a bloody mess. They're starting to make you take your books out of your bag. See now. Some people have to take their shoes off and others don't. And they want you to take it off and walk on the dirty floors. <laughs> I mean, oh, they want, it, it used to be that you couldn't pack electrics in your case. So you always used to ask you, didn't they? Have you got anything electrical in your case? Now you have to put all your electrics in the case, including your bloody laptop. So how, does it, how does all this work? How did they reason all this out? Do, does anybody actually fly that makes these rules and regulations? <laughs> think question. about it. Great question. Look, um, I think we got to wrap it up there, but I want to thank both of you guys for coming in. This is fantastic. I feel like we could go on for a very long time, but we've been at it for like an hour or so. Yeah. So thanks for coming, Fred, Fred Finn, and Lee Abamati. So just as we close, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. Um, we are on iTunes. We are on SoundCloud. Visit us at cntraveler.com. We are at Condé Nast Traveler on Facebook and YouTube and CN Traveler on Instagram, Twitter, and Snapchat. Please do tweet at us. If you are one of these power travelers, if you are like these guys, let us know. We'd love to hear your stories as well. I assume that you have a backpack just as full of great things as these guys do. Send us feedback, review us on iTunes, and maybe we could tell people how to follow you guys or reach you guys on, on social media or wherever you happen to And be. when you do, also tell us where your next trip is. <laughs> sure, I'm pretty Can easy. I'm pretty Can easy. I Lee? Yeah, go ahead, buddy. Do me a favor. Can you... I, I'd like to have you. I'd like to have you stay in contact with you. Sure, man. Of course. Tell him. Uh, oh yeah, no. You just go to. Uh, you can check out my website. It's just my name, leahbamonti.com, or at leahbamonti on Facebook, Snapchat, Instagram, oh, and Twitter. <laughs> and and Fred, you can just email me at lee at leahbamonti.com. And Abamonte okay. is A B B A M O N T E. Correct, well, sir. Okay. My, mine is easy. It's fly and my name, Fly Finn. Fly Finn at at, at gmail.com. Okay, Seb. You can reach, find me on all the things at Seb Modak, S-E-B-M-O-D-A-K. And I'm at Brad Rick. Thanks again, guys. Have a great Wait, weekend. Wait, I want to hear their next trip. Oh, sorry. What's your next trip? Uh, my next trip is currently undecided. I'm waiting to hear on a few things. But my next definite trip is uh, my beach house in Dewey Beach, Delaware, which is the best beach town on the East Coast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Plug. But you've messed up your crab time, man. <laughs> no, I can always find uh, time for that. Trust me. How about you, Fred? Where are you going next? Well, my next trip should be back to Ukraine. Uh, I'm hoping that we, my wife gets her passport back very soon so we can go to our home there. And I have a travel app called Quicket. It's the number one mobile travel app. Quicket? Uh, yeah, and it, it's quick with ET on the end. Like cricket, but Quicket. Got quick it. Quicket. Right. Check out. You can have a ticket in your hand in 40 seconds. But what is good about it, and Leo loved this, it has the best seat configuration of any app in the world. Oh. And it shows you where you should sit, where you shouldn't sit, in 360 degrees on nearly every aircraft in the world. Take and that, seat guru. I know. Fuck you, seat guru. <laughs> it tells you if it's red, you shouldn't sit there. This episode is brought to you by seat guru. <laughs> so, yeah, have a look at Quicket. It'll help you. And, and you if, know because you sat in all of them. <laughs> yeah, even if you didn't buy your ticket, you can scan your boarding pass in and still use all the services. Cool. Awesome. Cool. Thanks, guys. Have a great weekend, everyone. Thank you. Yeah, take care. All the best. Bye.